We will eat from that tree of life in a place not of sorrow and shame and guilt and condemnation, but life that is free and full and completely healed in his blood. That's the thing we're hoping for, that God has entered in to take on all of our shame and free us. So as we begin this process of grieving, what does this mean for us today? As we begin this process of walking through all of our pain and our sorrow that is very real and very present right now, what does this mean? Death is temporary. Your pain may last for the next 80 years and it will be miserable for that period of time. But it will cease. It will stop. And it will not only stop, it will be restored to be made good. So we cling desperately to the God who had shed his own blood for us. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. We have a problem in this country that seems to only be getting bigger. A problem of depression and sorrow and pain and anxiety that I would argue we don't know what to do with. I would say collectively as a whole, we have not taken the time to learn how do we deal with pain, and so we're left asking hard questions like, God, why would you do this to me? Or where were you in my suffering? And we don't have answers to those questions. I believe we as the church need to begin to learn to grieve to process our hurt and our pain and our sorrows in such a way that through our grief we can be honest with ourselves and with others and honest with God. And in all of that begin to find our healing. Over the course of the next several weeks as we lead up to Easter, we're going to be in this series called The Sting of Death. And throughout this series, we're going to be looking at death in Scripture as a means to look at grief as a whole. So for those of you who are right now in a season of grief where things are really heavy and really hard, let me give you two words of encouragement. Not actually two words, two different types of encouragement. First, you're not alone in your grief, okay? And second, in this season, it's okay if you're not okay. It's okay if you don't have all the answers and you're not even sure where to turn. I believe that as we together look at death throughout Scripture, we will see an answer that is not a platitude of hope someday, but hope for today. 
in the midst of our pain and sorrow and hurt. To get there, what we're going to do over the course of the next several weeks is we're going to look at different moments where death happens and it changes everything. We're going to look at what happens when we experience pain or sorrow because of somebody else's sin. What happens when we are grieving loss because of somebody else's evil? How do we do that? We're going to look at how do we grieve a loss that is caused by our own sin. See, the truth is some grief we cause. We bring upon ourselves, and what do we do when that happens? We're going to look at what do we do when grief is prolonged. Like when we're awaiting somebody's death and it seems to never come, and we watch them deteriorate, and we wonder, can I be there faithfully for them through this all? How do we grieve that kind of a grief? And finally, we're going to look at grief that comes when joy turns into mourning. When something that should be really wonderful instead becomes something really painful. How do we grieve that? And I believe that through this process together, every one of us will find that Easter truly is more rewarding. Because it's in our grief that we can be honest with God and we can see the fullness of what he has done for you and for me. Not someday later, but today. So as we get started in this process of grief, looking at death in scripture, we're going to begin with death itself. We often say things as, I think, sinners, like, well, I'm only human. And we use phrases like, I'm only human, to imply, I'm just going to keep screwing up, and that is the way it is. Or we talk about death when we don't know how to explain it by trying to explain it away and we say, that person's in a better place or it'll be okay, they're no longer suffering or God spared them from pain and we use these kind of cliche things to just reveal that we really have no idea what death is. Death in scripture was not intended for you and me. Did you know that we were made created by God to be immortal with a starting point but no ending point. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along, it's the very first page, maybe the second page of your Bible depending on how it's laid out. It's right in the beginning all the way at the start. Genesis chapter 1. As this story begins, It unpacks God creating everything, the stars and the sky, the earth and the sea, the fish and the animals, all the things God has created. Everything is good. Then comes this. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. 
you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. There is evening and there is morning, the sixth day. In this story of creation, God looks out over all that he makes, and everything he's made thus far is good. And God decides to make mankind, you and I, in his image, to be like him. Now, for the last several thousand years, people have argued over what does it mean to be made in God's image. Doesn't mean that when you look in a mirror, that's what God looks like. The same nose and ears and mouth and arms and all of that. Well, some people say, maybe. And I would argue that at least when Jesus took on flesh at that point, being made in God's image means God does have a body forevermore. Or maybe being made in God's image is something so much more. For some, they look at this command that you shall have dominion over the whole earth. And they say, that's what it means to be made in God's image. Now, we often hear dominion as some kind of oppressive, I can take advantage of and do as I please with, and I can have all of this creation for my sake. But that's not what dominion in the Old Testament is intended to convey. In fact, the Hebrew here implies less of an oppressive authority over in which we are in control for our pleasure, and more as a joining with God in the nurture and the care of this creation. We were created to participate with God in his very work of providing for all of the universe. Perhaps being made in God's image is the fact that you and I have the ability to reason and to feel. And so our reason can help us to think about things we've never been able to think of before and our emotions can help us to experience things in a way that nobody else and nothing else can experience. Perhaps being made in God's image is this ability to be deeply connected to this world more than just the physical and the chemical and the biological. Maybe being made in God's image is that you and I were made as he made us to be, to be creative and join in the process of creating things that bring beauty and goodness and life to the world around us. And so art and music and movies and all kinds of culture can be a a part of the way in which we engage in the process of joining God in creating good in this world. However it is that we are made in God's image, God looks at all of his creation and says it is very good. Everything that he has made is wonderful. And this line here in verse 28 is often used as a command. It says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Often this is connected with why you should have children. Well, God commanded you to be fruitful and multiply, right? Well, I believe that God here is not actually commanding children at all. It's a byproduct, certainly a good byproduct, but God is here not commanding anything at all. Rather, he's speaking a promise. In my good creation, in everything that I have made for you, in all of this world, 
you will be fruitful and multiply. Like the works of your hands will prosper and the things you do will bear fruit and life will go well for you in my creation because this is how I made it to be. But that's not where the story stops. So we're gonna continue in Genesis chapter two. Beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Just real quick, a brief pause. If you ever hear that word helper and you think of like the help or somebody who's less than or, or not quite as good, know that helper in Hebrew, this word here is used in the Old Testament to describe the way in which God helps his people. The way in which he comes alongside them in all of their need and supports and cares for them. God looks at man and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Let me provide for him one who will join in my work of caring for with all of his need and all the places of lacking and everything where he and himself is missing. This will be a help to him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In this creation story, it's setting up a problem that we'll get to here in a moment. For the first time, something is not good. Adam is alone. Now, we read in chapter 1 that man and woman were created together, and now in chapter 2, it seems different. Why? Because chapter 2 is not about chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the creation of all things, and chapter 2 is the beginning, the introduction to chapter 3, and ultimately the conclusion of chapter 4, which is not the creation of all things, but the fall of all things. When everything that was good became broken and no longer good. So Adam is alone. It's not good that he's alone. God chooses to make a helper fit for him. And out of this, he makes woman. One who is to be by his side to help and to serve, not less than but equal to and of the same value as sharing in the image of God. Now we'll get to chapter three when everything fell apart. God placed Adam and Eve into the garden. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a few verses. I'm gonna back up a little bit because this is important. You ready for this? Let's go back to chapter two, verse 15. Here it is. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Out of this good creation, everything God has made, he makes a garden. Now, anybody ever spent time in God's good creation, like up in the Smokies or out by Norris Lake, and you're just enjoying the beauty of creation? There's something I love about creation that is so spectacular, just the unfettered wildness of it, right? Like it just simply is, and you can't necessarily control what's coming next. Anybody ever been in an immaculately kept garden? 
a space that is cared for and nurtured and shaped to be something even more magnificent than it was on its own. In this wonderful creation, God, out of it, shapes a place for Adam to dwell, a place where he's to join in the work of caring for creation. And he places two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll get to those trees a little more here in a moment. But he places them there and he tells Adam, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the reason I have to back up here and make sure this is said, if you read the story as it's written, when does this happen? It happens before Eve is brought into the picture. It happens before God gives Adam a woman to be with him and alongside him and and help him in all that God is doing in this world. And God gives this command, don't eat of this tree. That's where chapter three becomes right off the bat alarming to anybody who likes literacy and is reading going, what's happening in this story? You see, what happens in chapter three is this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, as the story's written, Eve was not present when God said, don't eat of that tree. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, your alarm bells should be going off. That's not what he said. He said, don't eat it. And now she's adding to it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Just pause there for a moment. They were made in the image of God. In every way, they were like God, though they were not God themselves. But the serpent comes along to deceive Eve and says, when you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's where everything falls apart. See, what is it that Adam and Eve already knew? They knew all that was good. Everything in God's creation thus far was good. Everything. So what is it to know good and evil? Well, it's to know evil. To know that which is not good. And often because of our post-enlightenment culture in the West, when we hear the word to know, we think of like intellectually, like I can know a lot about chemistry or biology. I don't, but I could in theory. I could know a lot about certain subjects and, and not have any relationship to it whatsoever. But throughout scripture, the word to know is something deeper than just a knowledge intellectually. It's to holistically be encountering something that transforms the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act, it becomes a part of you. Thus far, they knew everything that was good. 
And what's put before them is, if you eat from the tree which you were not supposed to eat of, you will be like God, knowing what is evil. So all that he's offering to them is, do you want to know what it feels like to hurt, to suffer, to to sin against people, to cause pain to those you love? Do you want to know all that it means to be evil? Eat of this tree. So to that question, where is God in our suffering? Let's begin with realizing that we were not made for suffering in the first place. We were not made to know the pain of people who have hurt us. The pain of people who are absolutely evil and vile. The pain of all kinds of sickness and sorrow. This was not the way we were made to be. But Eve is deceived by this serpent. And this is what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Here's an interesting little side note in history for you. All of history blames Eve for eating the fruit. But all of Scripture blames Adam. He was there with her while she was being deceived, having heard the command from God, which she, as it's written, did not hear directly. And he was silent and ate with her, complacent in it all. And what happens next is this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, where previously it said they had been naked and unashamed, now shame has entered into their lives. Guilt and remorse and a sense of, I am not enough. I need to be hidden. There needs to be distance between me and the one whom I love. This cannot be as it currently is. And they hide not only from each other, but here in the next verse, from God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid to be with you, God, because what if I wasn't enough anymore? I was afraid to be with you because I saw all of my brokenness for what it really was. And I said, surely you wouldn't want me in your presence anymore, God. I was afraid. And he, that is God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate was both true and also completely blaming her. And for all of history ever since, we as men have been really good at passing the blame on somebody else. It's not my fault. They made me do it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's something really big to note right here. God looks at Adam and says, what have you done? And Adam says, not my fault, she did it. And Eve says, I I was deceived, I ate. And God first curses the serpent, which elsewhere in scripture says this serpent was the devil, our enemy, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, to deceive us, to take us from what God has in store and move us into something less good. God curses him. And in the middle of this curse comes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Plural, between her descendants, you will fight. There will be this tension between you. But then it shifts from plural to singular. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One singular descendant of this woman, one singular child who comes from her line will crush the head of this serpent. And this promise is given to you and me before death ever comes upon us. This promise that in the midst of all of our brokenness, God will send one to restore us to set us free from death and sin and the devil, to free us from all of this knowledge of evil that we once again can only know what is good and no longer have any suffering. Then he continues to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. See, this promise that you will bear fruit, that you will multiply is no longer a promise, but now a painful burden, a reminder that things right now are not as they should be. Not only this, your husband will rule over you, which was not the way it was created to be. They were created to be equals alongside one another, serving together in the image of God and in sinfulness and brokenness. He will now rule over her, not as the way it should be and not as the way it one day will be. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The very labor he was given to work with God in caring for this creation, in shaping and forming and creating in God's image the beauty God had in store, this very labor is now going to be filled with all kinds of pain and sorrow and anguish. Thorns and thistles as opposed to fruit. And we will return to the ground one day. Before I continue, I just want to briefly say, I think part of the reason we as a culture don't know how to grieve is because we act like death isn't here. 
We have sanitized the process of death in such a way that we only have to think about it later, but we never choose to think about it now. We put all of our cemeteries in one place and we bury people in concrete vaults so that the cemetery can be mowed and look nice and flat and pretty and we wash the headstones and we keep it nice so that way we can be reminded that death's not all that bad. And outside of the impending likelihood of death, we rarely stop to think that every single one of us will have the same end. It doesn't matter if you're really successful and life goes great or if your life is really hard and really difficult. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or no money, if you're well-fed or super hungry. It does not matter what happens in this life. You and I will have the same end. Death is the great equalizer for all people. I think when we begin to see death as a thing that is coming, not in a joyous, emo sort of way, like we can't wait, let's celebrate this, that's not good. Not in an anxious and fearful way, oh no, it's coming any moment I might die. Let's just stay locked up in our house and then we're safer from all the danger. When we begin to see death before us as simply what is, I think we're freed in all of our suffering, no matter what it is or how it's caused, to be reminded that this is not the way things were made to be. And also to be reminded that this is not the way things always will be. He shall crush your head. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This descendant of the woman, the reason we're gathered, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, in our image, so that we can be restored into his image. This one has come to conquer death for all of us, so that even as we see it coming, we know there is hope for today and tomorrow and the next. The story continues with this beautiful truth. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. See, to give a name is to imply a sense of value and identity. God gives Adam the task of naming all the creatures to give them identity and purpose. And it's only after this sin enters in that Adam names her the mother of all living. I believe this is a small foretaste of our promise that even in our sinfulness and even in our brokenness, we have been given purpose and identity that has nothing to do with how broken we are. God just promised death, and he calls her the mother of all living, even in the midst of it. And then God does a spectacular thing. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We can read over that line a hundred times and never stop to think about it. The only way we make a garment of skin is by putting something to death. Only in blood being shed is their nakedness and their shame covered. Not by them working hard and doing it themselves, but as a gift from God, he sheds blood so that all of their shame would be covered. That's our hope still to this day. That it was his blood that he shed that covers all of our shame and all of our nakedness.
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's so much beauty here. They knew all that was good. They were made in God's image and sin and brokenness entered in, rebellion entered in and the only thing they gained was an intimate knowledge of all that was evil and painful and sorrowful and bad. And God said, lest they eat of the tree of life while they're in this state, let me send them away from here. Just as it was never God's design that you and I should die. It is not his design that we should remain in our sorrow and our grief and our pain indefinitely. And he has spared us. That we cannot have immortality while also knowing sin and evil and sorrow and suffering. But one day we will have immortality without all of this. See, what's coming at the end of the Bible in Revelation is this promise that one day when he himself restores everything and death is finally defeated, we will eat from that tree of life in a place not of sorrow and shame and guilt and condemnation, but life that is free and full and completely healed in his blood. That's the thing we're hoping for that God has entered in to take on all of our shame and free us. So as we begin this process of grieving, what does this mean for us today? As we begin this process of walking through all of our pain and our sorrow that is very real and very present right now, what does this mean? Death is temporary. Your pain may last for the next 80 years and it will be miserable for that period of time. But it will cease. It will stop. And it will not only stop, it will be restored to be made good. So we cling desperately to the God who had shed his own blood for us who would take on all of our pain and suffer with us. We cling desperately to the God who would redeem us from this serpent and crush his head so that we may be healed. And each and every day, whatever our grief and whatever our pain, we know that he will be enough for today, for right now. When we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, He will guide us. His rod and his staff will comfort us no matter what we're going through. Will you pray with me today? God, we thank you that we were not made to know sin and sorrow and evil and shame, that we were made to know all of your goodness and to work with our hands at the work you are doing to create and preserve and bless this world. 
God, we thank you that even before the curse of death that entered in, you gave promise to the one who would come and redeem us, who would crush the enemy and free us from all of the devil's grips. As we learn to grieve, God, may you today be enough for today. May we cling desperately to the God who has promised to take away all of our grief. And in the meantime, while we await, may we find our strength not in us, but in you, in your life, in your death, and in all that you have given to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Now, as we continue our worship, we're going to continue by collecting an offering. And before we do that, I just want to share the last month, all throughout February, we had a big jug over here filled with change or slowly filling with change. And we said that whatever was put in there, we were going to give away to a local agency called The Empty Cup. It's a coffee shop that blesses and serves uh, foster parents and people pursuing adoption. And uh, I just want to let you know that through your generosity and all the spare change in your couches, we collectively gave over $566 to the empty cup. So. And let me tell you, 7,100 coins to individually separate and make your hands really dirty and thank, make me thankful for online giving because your hands stay much cleaner that way. If you in this place would like to uh, join us in the work that God is doing through financially partnering with us, you can make a gift uh, in person if you prefer that cash and that coin and all those things uh, by placing your gift in the uh, boxes on the wall as you exit. If you filled out one of those connect cards in the pew in front of you with a way that we can be praying with you, with a way we can contact you to get to know you a little better, you can place that in those boxes as well. And if you, like me, prefer to give online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner and making your gift there. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now that class that's starting after church, I decided to move until next Sunday. So I think everybody who signed up in advance, I'll let them know that we're moving it starting at next Sunday. If you haven't yet signed up and you'd like to join us, uh, we'll spend four weeks after church starting next week uh, diving into how do we prepare to die in a very practical and real way, and I'm excited for it. And every week, you text some questions, and I do my best to respond. So, Blake, what questions came in today? Yep, we have one that's a follow-up from last week that came in after the service, so we'll ask that one now. Um, so, there's a comment first starting saying, appreciate the comment that as Christians should spend more time in the Old Testament, but what is there to be taught or learned from Song of Solomon? <laughs> Uh, most kids aren't present, so let me tell you, there's a lot to be learned. Um, if you're not familiar with Song of Solomon, it is a poem between a man and a woman uh, who fall in love, and it's their journey of love and marriage. And in this love poem, it's very descriptive of everything. Uh, at one point, there's a chapter that he starts with her hair, and then he describes vividly working his way down her body, all of her body. It's uh, not for reading on Sunday mornings most of the time. Um, but what do we gain from it? We can see a picture of what healthy and beautiful uh, marital love looks like. And we can in some, some way, I, I specify this 
carefully, we can see God's love for us because Song of Solomon is very, very sexual and that's not God's love for us. So don't go leaving here thinking Jesus is your boyfriend. That's not how this works, okay? Um, But we see this deep and profound love that is holistic embracing who we are from God to his church, you and me. So the next one is thinking about the prayer message of this past month and was hoping how you might give some tips on how to pray for your enemies. I find this difficult. How to pray for your enemies. I would begin by asking God to show you how much he loves them. Because as we begin to see his love for our enemies, it begins to be really hard to hate them. And when we stop hating them, we can begin to actually pray for them because we want to see God do something good in them. So that's where I would start. Cool. Um, The next question is, do you have a Bible study? Yes, starting next Sunday. (laughs) Did you send that one in yourself? I did not. I was too busy up here to do that. (laughs) All right, so the next question is, uh, so I'm a little confused. How in chapter one were we to be fruitful and multiply if a woman wasn't created yet until chapter two? Is this why you see that as a promise more than a command by God? Well, if you recall, it said that God made them male and female. He made them. So Eve was created. There's a little phrase that happens on repeat in the book of Genesis, just a fun little trivia for you. It's, these are the generations of. It happens, I believe, 11 different times. Uh, And scholars believe that acts as a literary transition from one narrative and story to the next one. So if you go and you read through uh, Genesis, every time you see these are the generations of, uh, take note, it's a, a transition to a new story. So chapter one, in the beginning was uh, nothing, God made everything. And so then it, uh, chapter two says, these are the generations of, and you start a new story. And so chapter two through four is not the creation of all things, but the story of how everything fell apart. So chapter two functions as the intro, God put them in a garden, so that they would not eat of this tree. And we, reading literacy, we go, oh, they're told not to do something, they're probably about to do it, because that's how almost every good book works, right? And then in chapter three, we see they do the thing they weren't supposed to do, and in chapter four, what happens is their children, Adam, or Cain and Abel, end up fighting, and one kills the other. The climax of the story is that their brokenness no longer in God's image results in the death of their own children. Um, So that's why I think it's not necessarily, um, hey, woman wasn't made in chapter one. It's actually retelling the creation story for a whole different purpose. Cool. Um, The next question is, uh, I don't remember it ever being mentioned that Eve was shocked by the serpent speaking to her. Were the animals able to communicate with Adam and Eve before they sinned? I have no idea, but wouldn't it be awesome if when all of creation is renewed, we can like talk to bears and giraffes and stuff? I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I like the way C.S. Lewis describes it in a bunch of his books where these animals are able to speak because they're communicating with the God who created them and we happen to overhear it. And I like that picture. Yeah. I think that detail might have made uh, Noah's Ark a little bit more fun. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, Next question. Uh, In Genesis, God turns the serpent into what we know as a snake. Do we know what shape he was beforehand? What does serpent mean before God cursed him? We don't know. 
Um, people have speculated in a lot of different ways. Some people think that the shape that he had before he was cursed into a snake was a dragon, which is why throughout all cultures everywhere there's stories of some kind of dragon-like creature. Um, that's one thought. We don't actually know. Uh, I'd be curious to find out, but I don't think we ever will. Something to ask when we get there. Yeah. Um, so not a question, but just a comment. Uh, the first three books of Genesis have never been explained so clearly to me before. Thank you. Huh, you're welcome. And that was the last of them. Cool. I could spend days going into those first three books. I love them. There's so much there, but I won't spend days there. He can. He's tried with me before. Yeah. So. I'll keep trying. We'll keep talking. All right. So that's it. Awesome. Well, this is not on the events page of our website yet because I haven't officially made it an event and told Emily to put it there or asked her to put it there. But um, save the date, Saturday, March 25th. That's the last Saturday of the month. I would love for us to do some spring cleaning outside and spruce up the flower beds and plant some flowers if the weather lets us and uh, put some mulch down. And the reason for that is what you will find on our website is the following weekend, Palm Sunday weekend, we are hosting Big Ears Music Festival in this space. We're one of about six different venues around downtown. And so we're gonna possibly have a couple thousand people that the week before Easter are coming into our space and we get to just welcome them and be hospitable to them. And so my hope would be that if we can take a few hours on Saturday morning and spruce up the place, we can make that welcome uh, a little bit more welcoming, all right? So if you would save the date, Saturday the 25th, I would love your help spreading some mulch and cleaning some flower beds. And that's it. So as you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.